Section 28 of Four and Twenty Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. The Impossible Enchantment by the Count de Calus. Translated by James Planchet. Part 2. A few days after this first adventure, Bonnette and Galantine were attracted to one of the windows of the tower by what appeared to them a singular sort of music, and which indeed proved to be so. There was the same merman that they had already seen, who, always up to his waist in the water and his head covered with reeds, blew with all his might a species of conch shell, the sound of which was something like that of our ancient goat's horns. The princess again descended to the gate of the tower, and courteously accepted the coral and other marine curiosities which he presented to her. After this second visit, he came every day under the windows of the princess, diving and grimacing, or playing on the charming instrument I have described to you. Galantine contented herself with curtsying to him in the balcony, but no longer came downstairs, notwithstanding the signs by which the merman implored her. Some days afterwards, the princess saw him appear in company with another of his species of the other sex. Her hair was dressed with much taste, and her voice was charming. This addition to the company induced Galantine and Bonnette to descend again to the gate of the tower. They were much surprised when the lady, whom they now saw for the first time, after having tried several languages, spoke to them in their own, and complimented Galantine on her beauty. She perceived that the basement story, or bathroom, of which I have spoken, was open and full of water. Here, said she, is a place made expressly for our reception, for it is impossible for us to live entirely out of our element. She immediately entered and reclined as one does in a bath, and her brother, for she was the sister of the merman, placed himself beside her in a similar attitude. The princess and her governess sat down on the steps, which were continued round the apartment. I suspect, madam, said the siren, that you have abandoned your residence on the earth in consequence of being beset by crowds of lovers. If that be really the cause of your retirement, you will not obtain your object here, for my brother is already dying for love of you, and when the inhabitants of our great city have perceived you, he will certainly have them all for his rivals. The brother, who imagined she was speaking of him, at that moment made signs of assent with his head and his hands, and continued to do so when she was not speaking of him at all. The siren expressed to her the regret of her brother at not being able to make himself understood. I am his interpreter, she continued, thanks to the languages which I was taught by a fairy. You have fairies then also amongst you? said Galantine, accompanying the question with a heavy sigh. Yes, madam, replied the siren, we have a few, but if I am not deceived, you have suffered some injuries from those who inhabit the earth. At least, the sigh which escaped you would justify me in so believing. The princess, who had not been enjoined secrecy on the subject, recounted to the siren all that Bonnette had told her. You are much to be pitied, said the siren, when Galantine had finished her story. Nevertheless, your misfortunes may not be without a remedy, but it is time to terminate my first visit. The princess, delighted at the hope she held out to her, said a thousand kind things to her and they separated with a promise to see one another frequently. The princess appeared charmed with this adventure. 
Independently of the hope the siren had inspired her with, it was much to have found some one with whom it was possible to enjoy a little society. "'We shall make the acquaintance,' said she to her governess, "'of several of these mermen, and they may not all be as hideous as the first we have seen. At any rate, we shall not be always alone.' "'Good heavens!' said Bonnet. "'How easily young people do flatter themselves. I tell you, I am afraid of these folks. But what say you?' continued she. "'to the handsome lover of whom you have made a conquest.' "'I say that I shall never love him,' replied the princess, "'and that he is exceedingly disagreeable to me. "'But,' pursued she, "'I would fain discover if he cannot, "'by means of his relative, the fairy Marine, "'contrive to do me some service.' "'I repeat to you,' insisted Bonnet, "'that those odd-coloured faces and great fish-tails are alarming.' "'But Galantine, being younger, "'was consequently bolder and less prudent.' The siren came to see her several times, and always talked to her of her brother's affection. The princess, constantly occupied by her ideas of escaping from prison, encouraged the conversation, and at length induced the siren to promise she would bring the fairy marine to pay her an early visit, and that she would instruct her what to do. The fairy came with the siren the very next morning. The princess received her as her liberator. Some short time after her arrival, she requested Galantine to show her over the tower, and to take a turn with her in the garden, for, with the assistance of two crutches, she could manage to walk about, and as she was a fairy, she was able to remain out of the water as long as she pleased. Only it was necessary for her to moisten her forehead occasionally, for which purpose she always carried a little silver fountain suspended from her girdle. Galantine acceded to the request of the fairy, and Bonnette remained in the hall to entertain the rest of the company. When the fairy and the princess had entered the garden, the former said, Let us lose no time. Let us see if there is anything I can do to serve you. Galantine told her all her history, not omitting the smallest details, and the fairy then said to her, I can do nothing for you, my dear princess, on the land. My power does not extend beyond my own element but you have a resource and one in which I can assist you with all the art I possess. If you will do Gluatin the honour to marry him, an honour which he most ardently aspires to, you can come and live with us. I will teach you in a moment to dive and to swim as well as we do. I will harden your skin without blemishing its whiteness, and so prepare it that the coldness of the water, in lieu of inconveniencing you, shall give you the greatest pleasure. My cousin, added she, is, as you may suppose, one of the best matches in the ocean, and I will do so much for him in consideration of your alliance, that nothing shall have ever equalled your mutual happiness. The fairy spoke with so much fervour that the princess hesitated to refuse, and requested a few days to consider. As they were about to rejoin the company, they perceived a vessel in the distance. The princess had never before seen one so distinctly, as none had ever ventured to come so near the tower. They could easily distinguish on the deck of this ship a young man reclining under a magnificent pavilion, and who appeared to be very attentively surveying the tower by means of a telescope, but the distance was still too great for them to see anything more. The vessel beginning to recede, Galantine and the fairy returned to the company, the latter much pleased at the progress of her negotiation. She told the princess on leaving her that she should shortly come again to know her answer. As soon as the fairy was gone, Galantine related to her governess all that had passed between them. 
She was very sorry to see that her pupil was half inclined to yield to the fairy's persuasions. She was dreadfully afraid of being compelled in her declining years to become an old siren herself. To avert all the misfortunes she foresaw, she hit upon the following idea. As she could paint miniatures to perfection, she set to work, and by the next morning produced one of a young man with fair hair, dressed in large curls, the finest complexion in the world, blue eyes, and his nose slightly retroussé. In fact, presenting an assemblage of all the features that could compose a charming portrait, and we shall see in the end that some supernatural power must have assisted her in a work which she had undertaken solely to show Galantine the difference between a man of the world and her marine adorer, and so dissuade her from a marriage which was not at all to her taste. When she presented her work to her, the princess was struck with admiration, and asked her if it were possible that any man on earth could resemble that portrait. Bonnette assured her that there were many such, and some even handsomer. I can scarcely believe it, replied Galantine, but alas, neither the original of this portrait, nor any one like him, can ever be my husband. They will never see me, nor I them, as long as I live. Oh, how miserable is my fate! Nevertheless, Galantine passed the whole day in gazing on this miniature. It had the effect Bonnette anticipated. It ruined Gloatin's affairs, which had previously been put in pretty good train. But the governess almost repented having painted so handsome a face, as the princess gave up eating and drinking, in order to have more time to gaze upon it. If ever a portrait was capable of inspiring a real passion, it was assuredly in this case, and under the circumstances here related. The fairy marine returned a few days after the visit we have described, to ascertain what were the intentions of Galantine. But this young creature, engrossed by her new passion, for she was positively in love with the portrait, could not control herself as prudence would have suggested. She not only broke off with the fairy abruptly, but, what was worse, she exhibited so much contempt and aversion for Gloatin, that the fairy, indignant at the style of her refusal, left the princess with a determination to be revenged. In the meanwhile, the princess had made a conquest she was unconscious of. The vessel she had seen so near her residence had on board the handsomest prince in the world. He had heard of the enchanted tower, and determined to go nearer to it than anyone had yet done. He possessed such excellent glasses that in surveying the tower simply from a motive of curiosity, he caught sight of the princess, and the best proof of the goodness of his glass, and that he must have seen her distinctly, is that he fell desperately in love with her. Like a young man and a new lover, two conditions in which nothing is thought too hazardous, he was eager to cast anchor near the tower, lower a boat, and encounter all the dangers that the enchantment could threaten him with. But all his crew upon their knees implored him not to venture. His equerry, who was more frightened than any, or whose knowledge of the circumstances rendered him more competent to form an opinion, was most eloquent. "'You would lead us all to certain death, my lord,' said he. "'Deign to return on shore, and I promise you to go in search of the fairy commode. She is a relation of mine, and has always been very fond of me. I will answer for her zeal and her skill. I am perfectly sure she will do you good service.' The prince yielded, but very reluctantly, to so many good arguments. He landed, therefore, on the nearest point of land, and dispatched his equerry to find his relative, and implore her protection and assistance. In the meanwhile, he ordered a tent to be pitched on the seashore, and, glass in hand, 
sat incessantly looking either at the princess or at her prison, and his imagination becoming more and more excited, often presented to him its own creations for realities. At the end of a few days, the equerry returned with the fairy commode. The prince received her with the greatest demonstrations of affection. The equerry had informed her, during their journey, of the state of the case. "'In order to lose no time,' said she to the prince, "'I will send a white pigeon, in which I place implicit confidence, to examine the enchantment. If he finds a flaw in it anywhere, he shall enter the garden that crowns the tower, and I will order him to bring back some flowers, as a proof that he succeeded in finding an entrance.' If he can get in, I will soon find a way to introduce you. But, said the prince, can I not, by means of your pigeon, send a note to the princess, declaring the passion with which she has inspired me? Certainly you can, said Commode, and I advise you to do so. The prince immediately wrote the following letter. Prince Blondin to Princess Galantine. I adore you, and I am aware of your destiny. If, beautiful princess, you will deign to accept the homage of my heart. There is nothing I will not undertake to render myself the happiest of men by terminating your misfortunes. Blondin. When this note was written, they tied it round the neck of the pigeon, who only awaited his dispatches, for he had already received his instructions. He rose gracefully into the air, and flew off as fast as his wings would carry him. But when he approached the tower, there issued from it a furious wind that repelled him violently. He was not, however, to be disheartened by such an obstacle, and after making many circles round and round about the building, he discovered the weak point, which the fairy Rivouz had left in the enchantment. He slipped through it instantly, and flew down into the garden, to wait for the princess and to rest himself. The princess generally took her walk alone, from inclination, because a passion engrossed her heart, from necessity, because the governess could no longer ascend to that height without great fatigue. As soon as the pigeon saw her appear, he flew to her in the most flattering manner. Galantine caressed him, and seeing a rose-coloured ribbon round his neck, she wondered what it was put there for. How great was her surprise when she perceived the note! She read it, and this was the answer she returned by the pigeon. Princess Galantine to Prince Blondin. You say that you have seen me, and that you love me. I cannot love you, nor promise to love you, without having seen you. Send me your portrait by the same courier. If I return it to you, hope nothing. But if I keep it, be assured that in working for me, you work for yourself. Galantine. She fastened this letter in the same manner as they had done that which she had just received, and dismissed the pigeon who did not forget that he was ordered to bring back a flower from the garden. But as he was well aware of the importance lovers often attach to trifles, he stole one from a bouquet the princess wore in her bosom, and flew away. The return of this bird gave the prince such extreme delight that, but for the anxiety he was still under, he might perhaps have lost his senses. He wanted to send the pigeon back instantly, with a miniature of himself, which, by the greatest chance in the world, he happened to have amongst his baggage. But the fairy insisted on an hour's rest for her courier, which the prince employed in writing verses to send with his portrait. The pigeon, duly furnished with miniature and verses, set out once more for the tower. The princess was not certain he would return so soon, but she was looking out for him notwithstanding. She was in the garden, 
and had said nothing of this last adventure to her governess for she began to feel that love of mystery and reserve with which a first passion usually inspires one she eagerly detached the miniature from the pigeon's neck and her surprise was infinite when on opening the case she discovered that the portrait of prince blondin perfectly resembled that which bonnette had painted from fancy it was one of those fortunate accidents which it is impossible to account for the delight of galantine was extreme at making this agreeable discovery and to express in the prettiest possible way her own sentiments she took the prince's miniature out of its case put in its place the one she thought best of the many which bonnette had painted of her and immediately sent the pigeon back with it who began to be rather fatigued and would not long have been able to serve two lovers who kept up a correspondence so uncommonly active prince blondin had kept his eyes constantly turned in the direction of the tower awaiting the return of his courier at length he saw the blessed pigeon approaching but what were his feelings as soon as he could discern that the bird had fastened round his neck the same case that he had taken away with him he was nearly dying with grief the fairy who had never left him consoled him as well as she could and took herself from the pigeon's neck the case which he even refused to look at she opened it and pointed out to him his error in an instant he went into a transport of joy that could only be compared for its intensity to that which he had just endured of affliction we will lose no time said commode i can only make you happy by changing you into a bird but i will take care that you shall be retransformed at the right moment the prince without hesitation consented to the transformation and to anything else which could assist him to approach the person he adored the good commode thereupon touched him with her wand and he became in an instant the prettiest little humming-bird in the world joining to the attractions which nature has bestowed on that charming bird that of being able to speak in the most agreeable way possible the pigeon received fresh orders to conduct him to the garden galantine was astonished to see the bird she had no knowledge of but his being accompanied by the pigeon put her heart in a flutter and the humming-bird flying to her said good morning beautiful princess she had never before heard a bird speak and this novelty increased the gratification with which she received this one she took him on her finger and he immediately said to her kiss kiss colibri she did so with great pleasure over and over again i leave you to imagine if the prince was delighted and if he was not at the same time very much vexed that he was only a humming-bird for lovers are the only persons in the world who are happy and miserable at the same time commode however knew by her art that this was exactly the moment to restore the prince to his natural form which she did so quickly that the princess in the twinkling of an eye found herself pressed to the heart of a lover whom she loved the spell was broken that instant the tower trembled and dropped to its foundations its walls even began to open bonnette who was below stairs in the greatest alarm ascended to the terrace at least to perish with the princess the rocking of the tower increased as she mounted the staircase and when she arrived at the top she saw the whole building lean over and on the verge of falling into the sea she fainted outright at the same moment the two fairies commode and Paceville, arrived in a chariot of venetian glass drawn by six eagles of the largest size save yourselves quickly they cried to the two lovers the tower is falling and you will perish with it 
they leapt into the fairy car, without having had time to say a word to each other. But the prince managed at the same moment to fling the governess, still in her swoon, into the bottom of the car. Scarcely had they begun to rise in the air when the tower toppled over, and with a horrible noise fell, a mass of ruins, into the sea. The fairy marine, Gautin, and his friends, in order to be revenged on the princess, had sapped the foundations. Marine, perceiving that her designs were foiled by the intervention of the two fairies, determined to try if she could not by open war obtain possession of Galantine. She suddenly formed an immense chariot out of some exhalations, and entering it with all her family, filled every available space in it with oysters in their shells, fragments of rock, stones, and other trifles of that description. With this chariot and this ammunition, she caused herself to be wafted by a high wind to the seashore, to intercept the car of glass. She did even more. She commanded all the wild ducks and sea-fowl of every sort, for ten leagues round, to come in flocks to darken the air, and oppose the landing of the fairies. This order was executed with a quacking and squalling that was insupportable. Our two lovers thought themselves lost, but as they had a taste for the destruction of enchantments, they wished to try what they could do against this. The fairies, however, did not consider it necessary. Commode produced from the box-seat of the car a great quantity of petards and rockets, which she had provided apparently for the purpose of making a display of fireworks. But whatever might have been her reason for bringing them, she now used them with much effect, for she directed so many against these troublesome fowl that they were compelled to disperse. The enemy in the chariot then had recourse to their last weapons. Not one of the marine party doubted that, with the oysters and stones, they should shatter the glass car to fragments in a few moments. It was not a bad idea, and we may even presume that they would have achieved their object if the fairy Pessible had not taken out of her pocket a burning glass which she always carried about with her. It is best to be candid. I frankly admit that I never very clearly understood for what purpose she constantly carried that particular utensil. But she placed it, however, on this occasion, in such a position that it speedily warmed her enemies, after a fashion as new as it was disagreeable. They uttered the most fearful shrieks, and the exhalations being dispelled by the power of the sun, all the marine family, with the fairy herself, were precipitated pell-mell into the ocean, leaving our two victorious fairies to continue their journey to the dominions of Queen Moutine. On arriving in them, they found she was dead. She had endeavoured, partly from fear of some new punishment, partly from conviction, to control her temper. In this attempt, she had swallowed so many violent expressions and stifled so many wicked impulses that these prodigious and continued efforts after causing her several severe fits of illness, at length terminated fatally. She had been dead indeed some years. The good king who had married her quietly enjoyed the sweets of his widowhood, and though he had no other children than the daughter whom he never expected to see again, nothing in the world could have induced him to marry a second time. He governed his estates very peacefully, and the good king prudent, Galantine's grandfather, had just arrived notwithstanding his great age, to pass the holidays with him. What joy for these two worthy sovereigns! The whole court soon participated in it, as the news spread of the arrival of the fairies with a charming princess, who was their king's daughter. The marriage of the two lovers was fixed for the next morning. 
couriers were instantly dispatched in all directions to beg the fairies generally to honour the nuptials with their presence. You may believe that fairy grave was not forgotten. In short, they arrived from all quarters. Festivities, balls, tournaments, grand banquets succeeded each other for many days. They bantered, and at the same time thanked, fairy reviews for the blunder she had made in her enchantments. She defended herself by observing that lovers were always more ingenious than magicians were skilful, and that to prevent their success it would require an enchantment that was impossible. I forgot to tell you that the governess recovered from her swoon immediately on her arriving at the palace. In short, everybody was satisfied, and the fairies, after sharing in the festivities for several days, departed, each to manage her own affairs or to enjoy new pleasures. Our lovers were always constant and became the happiest sovereigns on the face of the earth. End of part two. End of the impossible enchantment. End of section 28.